This is Our American Stories, and we love telling stories about American business, the ideas, the workers, and every now and then, the bosses. And it takes a very special skill set to build something from the ground up or to run organizations day to day. And what does it take to run a multi-billion dollar enterprise? Joining us to talk about what he calls super bosses is Professor Sidney Finkelstein of Dartmouth College. Super Bosses is the latest of his 20 books, and he wrote it after spending a decade researching how leaders manage the flow of talent. And by the way, he's a professor of strategy and leadership at Dartmouth College. And Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be on with you. Thank you. Let's start with the word super boss. Uh, give us some examples uh, and tell us what it actually means to you. So uh, there's no such word in the dictionary. I, I kind of made it up, and I made it up because there's these unusual people that have an, a tremendous track record in generating and regenerating talent, really on a continuous basis, kind of a, almost like the holy grail of business when you, when you think about it. So these are leaders that, in a sense, create other leaders, that help other people get better, that see the potential in others before they see it themselves. And that's what, that's what this idea around super bosses means. Great. And, and who are some of the people that you think might fit into this category? And for folks who don't know their names as you rattle off the names, maybe give the listeners an idea of who those people are and what they helped create. Absolutely. I, I, suspect, uh, I suspect your listeners will know some of these names very well because Ralph Lauren is one of them, legendary uh, fashion guru who built a multi-billion dollar uh, business. Uh, George Lucas uh, from Star Wars fame, and and uh, and he's especially a super boss because of his work in uh, in special effects and all the different people that he helped uh, he helped develop that have become um, they become stars. Jay Shiat, who uh, was the founder of a of an advertising agency called Shiat Day, that became famous among other things for the 1984 Apple ad during the Super Bowl. Um, Miles Davis, the legendary jazz uh, genius. Uh, who uh, redefined the world of jazz and had so many protégés that went on to, uh, to tremendous success. Larry Ellison from Oracle, founder of Oracle, now the chairman, longtime CEO. Many of his uh, uh, right-hand uh, men and women uh, became uh, big-time entrepreneurs and successes. Uh, people like Mark Benioff, for example, from Salesforce. Um, uh, how about Alice Waters in the, in the foodie business? She is the uh, chef and founder of a restaurant called Panisse in Oakland, one of the most famous restaurants in America, and she is the reason why when you go to, a re- you go to so many restaurants today and you look at the menu and you see the, the listing of the farm that the product or the ingredient came from, it's, it, she's the one who invented, really, farm-to-table local sourcing of food in America, and that has now, of course, become standard practice. So that's a handful of names for you. There, there are some others as well, but they're, they're pretty famous. And I think it proves that it, they come from all walks of life, and they don't necessarily have to run a business. I mean, certainly no one would consider Miles Davis a businessman. But my, my goodness, the number of people he influenced who then went on to influence other people is legion. And by the way, I have a friend who worked at Ralph Lauren and is now a pretty big designer herself. And not, not, not to the stage of Ralph Lauren, but she had told me once and listed the number of names that started at the House of Lauren and now have their own designer shops. And, Professor, I was just stunned. No, it's just, uh, it's amazing. You know, Vera Wang, uh, Tori Birch, uh, Joseph Abu, John Varvotos, uh, the guy that runs uh, Michael Kors' business, 
we, we, we started looking into this, and we just generated this long, long list of, uh, of names, and it's, uh, it's really remarkable. And Miles Davis, you mentioned, think about some of the people that were in his band and that he influenced over the years that have become the absolute superstars of jazz. Uh, John Coltrane, uh, Herbie Hancock, uh, Bill Evans, Wayne Shorter, a, a long, long list, and all those people over time became highly influential themselves. And so I guess the, the question becomes, how do these super bosses find talent? And I guess there's a question inside this question, because sometimes I think that the talent finds the super boss. Mm, great, uh, great, great insight. When you, when you begin to get a track record of, um, of spawning all these uh, successful people, um, the, the high aspiration folks out there, the people that really want to make it, they pay attention to that. They notice that. And, and, and then they start knocking on your, uh, knocking on your door and trying to get a job. This happened with George Lucas, by the way, uh, just, uh, almost every, every day when I interviewed a bunch of the people that worked with him, they would, uh, they would talk about how, you know, he was in Skywalker, uh, Ranch, um, up there in, I think, Marin County outside San Francisco. And, uh, almost every, uh, every second day, some kid who just graduated from college somewhere would come knocking on the door asking for a job. And these were kids sometimes that had physics degrees, math degrees. They weren't necessarily, you know, uh, people just want to make movies. And, and one of the geniuses of, uh, of what he did with Star Wars and, and what, what Lucas did is he recognized that to accomplish all that he wanted to accomplish, he actually needed to create a whole bunch of other businesses that are really, today we would call them high-tech businesses, digital businesses that never existed before. And so the word got out that if you had a Ph.D., uh, or even if you didn't, but if you had a Ph.D. in one of the sciences and you wanted to do something a little bit different, uh, go find uh, Mr. Lucas because there's an opportunity there. Well, when we come back, we're going to dig in to more of Super Bosses, how exceptional leaders master the flow of talent. And we're talking to Professor Sidney Finkelstein, Professor of Strategy and Leadership at Dartmouth College. And just as an aside, my dad had always taught me to find these kinds of folks. When I was a young high school athlete, my dad said, you want to get really good, you got to go over to Bobby Knight's summer camps. And he's the legendary coach at Indiana. And when I got there, I found coaches who would coach for Knight, including a player who had played for Knight named Mike Krzyzewski. And when you went down the food chain of Bobby Knight and the NCAA, it was an all-star list you couldn't believe. And I became an L-State player. And then secondary brush with this kind of uh, super boss was my brush with a man named William F. Buckley. When I was in college, he took me under his wing. He also took Dinesh D'Souza and Laura Ingram under his wing. And he trained up the next group of conservative talkers and thinkers. And this happens with politics. This happens in every walk of life. It's a fascinating subject. And when we come back, more with Professor Sidney Finkelstein, author of Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. This is Our American Stories. back and talking to professor of strategy and leadership at dartmouth college professor sydney finkelstein author of a fantastic new book super bosses how exceptional leaders 
master the flow of talent. And, Professor, you heard me just talk about Bobby Knight and and whatever people think about his style. I loved his style. People self-selected and went to play for him. And, my goodness, when I got there, Larry Bird was there. Isaiah Thomas was there. You know, coach after coach after coach who were D1 coaches, including Mike Krzyzewski, was there. Uh, talk about the, the area of sports, because you do mention Bill Walsh. I think you could probably put Vince Lombardi down and even Bill Parcells down. Well, well said. You know, um, Bill Walsh was one of the uh, major uh, super bosses that I uh, that I profiled and, um, and 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 wrote about in the book. And and the reason is uh, we we actually looked at this in a, in a kind of quantitative way. Believe it or not, what we did is we looked at all the Super Bowl uh, winning and losing head coaches, so the two top head coaches in the NFL every year, and we did a genealogical study of them which is to say not their parents, but who they work for. And, uh, and then we start counting and creating these trees of talent. And when you do that, you discover that Bill Walsh was uh, sitting at the top of the most influential tree of talent in the NFL by, by far. Uh, something like 25 of his protégés have uh, gone on to success, and, and between him and some of those protégés, they've been in the Super Bowl more than anyone, anyone else. It's funny you mentioned Bill Parcells. He was number two. And uh, and he had that type of uh, that type of influence as well, uh, and I think and you know where else in sports you see it? I think you see it in with the San Antonio Spurs, and um, uh, and and you see their management team and a bunch of people that worked work there become head coaches and general managers in other parts of the uh, of the NBA. So sports lends itself uh, to this, but you know we also mentioned Miles Davis. So jazz lends itself to this. It's really rather uh, remarkable, and it speaks to. And this is something I think, you know, people, people re- really resonate with. It speaks to legacy. You know, what's your impact? And whatever it is, your chosen profession, and whatever you do in your life, and yeah, we all want to be successful. We want to have this, we want to have that. But at the end of the day, if you can look back and say, I helped these other people accomplish more than they probably could have on their own, that's, that's a pretty powerful thing, and, and that's what super bosses bring. There's no doubt. And once they've hired what they think is top-tier talent, how do super bosses motivate, inspire, and mm-hmm. get the best out of their people every day? That's a question. Yeah, they, well, there's a, there's a lot I could say about that. But in a nutshell, they do push you hard. You know, you said earlier about Bobby Knight, he's not everybody's cup of tea. Well, this is true for every super boss. You've got to be prepared to work really, really hard. They raise the bar, high expectations, and if you're willing and able to step through the door that's been open for you, it's a tremendous opportunity. But if you're not and you can't keep up, they're not going to spend any time on you. So it's very much of a meritocracy when you think about it that way. Now, inspiration is a big point as well. I've, I've worked with a lot of management teams over the years, and there are plenty of hard-driving managers, hard-driving leaders, push their people hard. But adding the, the inspiration part, which is to say to help other people believe that they're really the special ones, that they, that they can accomplish anything. I mean, Ralph Lauren used to say to people on his team, we are the ones that set the standard. We don't follow anyone else. They will follow us. And he believed it. I mean, you have to really be authentic about a thing like that. And, and, and so he fires up people. He energizes people. And, and, they, and they start to believe, you know, I've been selected by a Bill Walsh, by a Jay Shiat, by uh, Ralph Lauren, uh, that doesn't just happen by, by magic, by accident. And now I have to live up to that. I have to live, live up to that potential. So there's a big, it's a big part of, of inspiration, I think. That is how they help other people get better. And if I could add one other thing that I found to be much less common, and I think it's, I think it's a mistake, uh, and super bosses do this all the time, that is that they treat each individual employee or team member 
as an individual. They figure out what makes each person tick. They figure out how to motivate that person, how to energize that person. They even think about what the right career path should be, what's the next step, what's the next responsibility. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. And I think that in, in many areas of, of leadership, we have a lot of managers, a lot of leaders that, that, that are told, you know, you're a, you're a directive leader, or you're a relationship-oriented leader, or whatever. We put these labels on, yep. on people. And then as a result, you say, well, okay, everyone's got to accommodate me because it's who I am. But in fact, the best leaders, they're true to themselves, but they know that to get the, met, the most out of people, to, and to create these opportunities for people, they have to customize how they interact with those folks. And that's what they do. No doubt. And that, that inspiration part, you know, when I, when I was reading Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs, my goodness, a real difficult guy to work with. But you knew you were making history with this man. And so the inspiration came not necessarily by what he said to you, but what the team there at Apple was going to do to the world. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's absolutely right. And, I, and I'll say from a lot of the interviews of protégés of superbosses that I did, the, the, some version of, of this old metaphor about the train leaving the station came up, and these are people who didn't even know each other. They would, talk, they, they would say something like, you know, my uh, super boss, you know, Ralph Lauren or Bill, Bill Sanders in the real estate business, whoever it is, they would describe what their vision is, what they wanted to do, what they wanted to accomplish. And you knew right then and there that if you didn't hop on that train as it was leaving the station, you could regret it for the rest of your life. Imagine what, what that must have felt like. And they jumped at that opportunity. And so, you know, creativity and innovation and risk-taking, I think, is part of the story as well. Yeah, then the risk-taking, if you're taking it together, it doesn't feel like as much of a risk. Uh, no. Going at it by yourself, scary. Going at it with a band of merry warriors, a band of brothers and sisters. Uh, and, and I sometimes think that's, it almost becomes a military feeling in these senses. Talk about some of the applications in the military world. I've talked regularly with the commandant at West Point uh, throughout my lifetime, and I am amazed and, and shocked that people haven't written more and more widely about the remarkable uh, things they're doing over there at West Point. And if you follow that leadership tree through American history, it's not just the military battlefield. It's everywhere, Professor Finkelstein. Mm -hmm. It absolutely is. The, 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 in fact, it's, it's, it's funny you mention that because that's one of the big research projects I'm working on right now to try to understand how the military keeps producing world-class talent time and time again. And it's a complicated story because the truth is, and this is true for any part of public service or government, there is a seniority aspect in here. Uh, you don't automatically just get promoted two or three levels up uh, as, you know, Ralph Lauren may, might see some unbelievable potential in someone, and he might do that. But in a lot of other sectors of, of the economy and big parts of, big parts of what, what the country and, and the world is really all about, uh, there is a seniority element, and, I, and, and that could hold you back. But yet, despite that, when you look at the military, you see this, this, this development of, of so much talent. And part of it is... It's not an accident. You know, you know, West Point has a big leadership academy. I've spoken at, uh, at, the, at the Army War College about some of this as well. They invest a lot of time and a lot of energy in thinking about leadership, not just in a military sense, but in every aspect, in, in every walk of life, and then applying it to the military. So they take this really, really seriously, and I think the results show. No doubt. And, you know, we had done an hour on John Wooden on the day of his birth. And we found some audio where John Wooden is sitting around 11 of his players, and it's Bill Walton, and it's uh, Sidney Wilkes, and it's, uh, it's, it's like just Gail Goodrich, some of the great NCAA and professional athletes of all time. And Bill Walton at a certain point goes, Coach, 
I always felt, felt like you had a double standard. You treated me tougher than you treated old Goodrich. Why was that? And he said, son, I didn't have two standards. I had 12. Always I had 12. And talk about that, because he always had 12 players, and he had high standards for all of them, but he mm-hmm. treated them each. What he, I think he was saying is, I'm going to treat you each as individuals. Yeah, it's really a, it's a, such a fantastic gift you're, doing to, you're giving to the people on your team because they just have a, a, an entirely different, uh, different opportunity. You know, the, 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 the way I think about it is, think about the world of, of marketing and sales today. Uh, or go, go on Google and type in a search term. And before you're finished typing it in, it, it completes it for you, of course, right? And then there's an ad sitting there about what you just typed in. And it's a little bit spooky how customized they are. And then compare it to how the, the field or the, uh, or, or the world of management and leadership operates, which is, you know, gigantic. It's everywhere. Every organization, every company, every entrepreneur has got to be a manager, has got to be a leader. And think about how it, it is so uncustomized. Um, and, and this one-size-fits-all. And, and the question I, I like to ask senior leaders when we talk about these topics is, you know, what, what would happen if you started to treat your employees the same way you treat your customers? What do you think might, might happen? And, and uh, it's a, it's a, it requires a bit of a shift in your brain to think about it that way, but as soon as you do that, you realize, and your John Wooden example is a great, is a great, uh, is a great example of that. By the way, Bill Walsh was legendary for, uh, for doing that. George Seifert, who succeeded him and actually won a Super Bowl after him, uh, said, you know, he pushed me so hard. We, were, we won. We would win big in the playoffs. And he would pick out every little detail. And he said, and, and, and it, was, it was really tough. And, and George Seifert would say, you know, afterwards, when I became a head coach, I realized what he was doing. He knew that I could be his successor. He knew that I could do it. And he wanted to make sure that I was as ready as possible. And that's why he did it the way he did. And we're talking to Professor of Strategy and Leadership at Dartmouth College, Professor Sidney Finkelstein, author of Superbosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we continue our conversation with Professor Sidney Finkelstein author of Superbosses How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent and he's a professor of strategy and leadership at Dartmouth College where some dear friends of mine have graduated and there's no finer place in the country to study if you want to endure a few cold winters um, it's just terrific and it's a beautiful place to be. Professor Finkelstein thanks again for joining us. Great to be on. Thank you. You bet. I wanted to uh, dig into now this article in the Wall Street Journal that you wrote, and it was entitled, Why the Best Leaders Want Their Superstar Employees to Leave. Talk about that aspect of being a super boss. It is easily the most uh, radical uh, part of the, uh, of, of the equation, and that is, uh, and it really goes counter to how a lot of people think about, uh, think about leadership, think about business, but 
if you do a lot of the things that we've been talking about, you find great talent, you push them hard, you raise the bar, high expectations, you inspire, inspire them, you, 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 you tie it all together with a vision, you unleash their creativity uh, and their innovation, and you, you customize how you work with them, all these things, what do you end up with? You're going to end up with team members that are going to be unbelievably capable, and some of them are going to want your job or maybe even your boss's job. And so you try to accommodate by giving them bigger opportunities and bigger. But some of these people will have, will, will have seen what's in front of them, will have seen what their, you know, use the sports analogy, will, their ceiling would have gone up uh, in a way that they probably hadn't anticipated when their careers. And as a result, they're, they're going to want, they're gonna want something big. And some of them are going to say, I need to, I need to leave. I need to find my own place. I need to make my own mark. And the question then is, for you as the, as the leader, as the boss, uh, well, what are you going to do about that? And, and the, the answer, uh, an answer that says, hey, you know, why would I want to lose these best people? That doesn't make any sense. Misses the point. It's not that you have a choice in the matter. It, that no one could force the people that work for them to work for them. Yeah. They, have, they are free to do whatever it is they want to do. And so as soon as you realize you're going to miss, you're going to lose some people, the question then is, how can I be as strategic as possible about that? And by that, I mean, how can I look for opportunities to continue to do business with this person? How can I continue to get a return on my investment after working with this person for five years, 10 years, or 15 years, or whatever it happens to be? So a couple of examples. Uh, Bill Frist is the founder of Hospital Corporation of America. Um, actually, Tommy Frist. Bill is the senator, a former senator from Tennessee, his brother. Uh, Tommy Frist. Is, uh, is a longtime CEO at HCA, and he, he was a true super boss. He had tremendous talent in, in, in the executive suite, and some of those people were going to leave. And so what did he do? He created spin-off businesses for them, a surgical care unit, a mental health clinic, something in their general field. He would create that business. He would provide equity into that business, and he would create that for one of his top lieutenants to become CEO in that business. And what happens? That person gets to run their own show, which is what they were going to do anyways. They were going to leave. But you now have some equity in that business. You have some partnership in that business, so you can continue to, to benefit. Or, you know, take a, take a common cultural uh, example. Uh, Saturday Night Live and Lorne Michaels, the longtime executive producer, he knew he was going to lose some great talent. People like uh, Jimmy Fallon, Seth Meyers, uh, Tina Fey, and uh, they were going to go. It wasn't a question of forcing them to stay. You can't. So what did he do? He became, executive, he became the executive producer of their shows so that he capitalizes financially and reputationally in their ongoing success. And so what, really, uh, what, what that Wall Street Journal article is really about is saying, hey, wake up a little bit. You cannot force people to work for you. And if you're going to help them get better, and why wouldn't you want to do that, uh, expect some of them to say, I want, I want a greener canvas. I want to go somewhere new. And then you've got to start thinking about it a little bit differently. And as soon as you start to do that and start to manage that more effectively, you get two or three really important benefits. Number one, of course, is this idea of continuing this return on investment from a person that you've invested in for a number of years. You can continue to do work with uh, with them, whether it's uh, uh, whether they become clients of yours or, or customers of yours, or they they recommend people to work for you, or what what have you. There's all of those things happen. Second is you become a talent magnet. Something we touched on earlier. Some of the best people are going to look for you because you now have that reputation. And third, and this is kind of the the Zen like uh, comment here. Uh, as soon as you stop fixating on talent retention, 
and adopt the super boss approach to developing talent and to leadership, you actually will find that you will retain talent longer than you otherwise would because they're working for someone that absolutely, uh, they absolutely love to work for. They're learning so much. And so eventually they're going to go, but they're probably going to stay longer than they otherwise would have. And it's for all of those reasons that this is a very different take on how to think about leadership, how to think about talent retention. But I think it's exactly the way the world is going. And, and, and to me, it's the only logical approach given the situation. By the way, you know, John Stuart Mill had written about the happiness paradox, and that is the people who tried to pursue happiness never got it. But the mm-hmm. people interested in other people's happiness became happy. And I think in the shareholder value space, the executives who didn't pursue shareholder value short term were the ones that delivered some of the greatest long term shareholder value. So it makes complete sense almost in an odd way, in an ironic way, that not concentrating on talent retention not only gets you to retain talent longer, but if you'll support the talent in its exit, you'll attract a whole new type of talent because of your generosity and your vision. Talk about that. Well, this is what uh, this is what happened time and again. I mentioned earlier, you know, George Lucas and people knocking on his door in Skywalker Ranch. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I heard stories of of great people uh, seeking out some of the uh, some of these super bosses because they knew this is where you want this is where you want to go. And 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 the result is, when you think about the, the the challenge of finding great people. Every organization, every company's got to deal with this, right? Well, how do you find them? You have your outreach. You have the things that you do, and, and that's important. But imagine that the, the, the supply and the best of that supply, if you will, starts to come to you. Uh, it's a, I mean, that's a real game changer. That's worth a lot of money. It's worth a lot, that's worth, worth a lot for anyone. Yep. And, uh, and you see it, you know, in, in, in all, kinds of, uh, all kinds of industries. You know, I just read a, um, a research study on, on, on law firms uh, and how law firms that have associates that move on to partner at a high, at a at a different um at a different firm those the the, the firm that they left from actually starts to attract higher quality talent yep. to start with because they're gaining the reputation the pathway to success that's right and by the way this also teaches firms resiliency it teaches them to not depend on the talent that's right in front of our face and that we can withstand not only withstand people leaving us but we can actually thrive, and I think that's what resiliency is really all about. It's not just uh, sticking with the status quo. If we're resilient organizations, if we're resilient families and a resilient nation, oh my goodness, what an attribute to have. Well, resilience, uh, in, in my mind, is one of the key attributes of great, uh, of great leadership. We all get knocked down, but who's ready to get back up and say, I'm ready for another round? I'll do it a little different this time, but I'm ready for another round. You, you have to admire people like that, and that's definitely something that's part of the super boss way of thinking. And by the way, folks, if you ever get a chance, there's a book by Nassim Taleb, and we've had him on before, and we'll have him on again. He wrote The Black Swan, and it was a terrific book. But his follow-up was a book called Infragility, and we've never talked to him about that book, but it talks about resilience and talks about small organizations sometimes being able to be more resilient than larger ones. We love talking about these subjects here on Our American Stories, and when we come back, we're just going to talk about leadership with Professor Finkelstein. Leadership in the family, leadership at your church, leadership at your civic organizations, leadership in your life. When we come back, this is Our American Stories.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Professor Sidney Finkelstein, author of Superbosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent, and he happens to be the Professor of Strategy and Leadership at Dartmouth College. And Professor, I was just talking uh, briefly about Nassim Taleb's work and in the book Infragility and this idea of resilience. Uh, talk about that if you could, and then we're going to jump right into leadership itself. But uh, the, the small versus the big and very often in life, we've found that these small companies are able to do things that much larger companies can't. And then pretty soon, these small companies find themselves being big themselves. Talk about that and how those super bosses deal with going from being the small challengers to being the big guy on the block being challenged by smaller guys. Yeah, this, this pattern you're describing is very common, of course. And, uh, you know, Schumpeter called it creative destruction. Big companies keep doing what they've always been doing. They find it difficult to adapt and adjust. And the smaller entrepreneurial companies come in and take over. And even if the big ones don't go out of business, they lose huge, uh, huge upside. You know, look at companies in Silicon Valley that weren't around 10 or 15 years ago that are just killing it, um, including obviously Google and Facebook and, and, and Amazon. And uh, the businesses they created, they, they all started small, but the businesses they created, uh, they were there for the taking by the giants in the tech or any other industry. They didn't, they didn't do it. And, and super bosses, of course, like anyone else, started, started small. But the thing about them is that they just never, they never give up. You know, you talk about resilience. They just never, they never give up. They, they always are looking for, and this is important, they're, they're always looking for a new challenge. They always want to move further. I call them, <laughs> I call them sharks in a way because they're always moving on to something, something bigger and, and better. And, and, uh, and then when they accomplish something, when they hit a target, they're excited. That's great. They'll celebrate. But then they're going on to, to a bigger target. And they teach, uh, they teach the people that work for them. Exactly the same type of mentality. And if you think about why so many larger organizations struggle, it's because they get set in their ways. Uh, they're, they're not able to, make the, the, to have that agility, that flexibility, that adaptability that is so, that is so central. And, um, and in fact, I think the whole, way of, the whole way we think about how organizations change has got, has got to shift as well because most people look at change and this, like, talk to any Fortune 500 senior executive and they'll tell you the same thing. We need to develop a, we need to have a burning platform to convince people to change. We need a sense of urgency. That, that's kind of standard practice. And I listen to that and I say, well, that's, that, that's actually crazy. Why do you need to have your house on fire before you do something about you know, how, how the place is working. Uh, why not always be adaptable? Build a culture, and this is the super boss culture, build a culture that is all about adjustment, agility, creativity, change. And I think that's a, just a much more powerful uh, model to think about. Yeah, I think setting the house on fire every other year, uh, the, the boy or girl who cried wolf starts to set in, don't you think, Professor? Yeah, well, at some point you, you, lose, you lose your people. Um, and, and I just think it's not, a, it's not an effective method to think about change because it's based on an assumption, which is that people 
people don't like to change. That's the dominant, dominant assumption among many, many people in business and a lot of academics. And maybe that's true, except you could do something about it by creating a, an entirely different work environment or social and social environment to help them think about the world very differently, that customized approach to dealing with each individual, spending the time to develop people, enhancing their, their leadership, inspiring them. All those things make them, put them at the edge of the seat, at their seats, so they're the ones that want to lead the, the, the change, and they're not comfortable kind of resting on their laurels. That's not who they are. Yep. That's, a, that's the way you have to think. Well, and also making, making change. change fun instead of scary, rewarding change, rewarding thinking differently and acting differently can provide and ultimately support behavior that that uh, effectuates that outcome let's talk a little bit about uh, families now and church leaders and just people in civic life you know talking about what makes leaders you know what goes into some strong leadership training and first of all why do you think we're not spending enough time on things like leadership and character and by the way i don't know how you separate those two things at a certain point in time but why aren't we spending enough time in our k-12 and in colleges talking about leadership and character because if there are two things that can stick way past our education it's how to lead and how to be the kind of person who's worthy of being followed i think that we have a a, a true crisis of of leadership in in many areas of of the public arena whether it's schools uh, whether it's health care um, um, and, 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 you know, parts of government as well. Uh, I think, uh, I think we, we don't spend enough time thinking about that. That's, you brought up schools, so let's think about K-12 schools. There's, there are many wonderful, wonderful K-12 schools and great principals and, and superintendents. There's no doubt about that, but there's also a lot of variation. And um, one of the reasons is if you're the principal of a school, you are actually the CEO of that school. And we know from talking about and teaching and learning about leadership in all kinds of different environments, all kinds of different contexts, that there are certain things that could be useful and uh, that could help you become a more effective leader. And, and I think actually there's research that demonstrates that even kids' uh, test scores, uh, the teacher is the single most important person and what that teacher does, and the leadership of the, of the institution itself is the next most important thing. Talk about Teach for America as a big revolution that's been going on. You know, young, smart young kids going into inner city schools to try to improve them and teach, and it's been having a very positive impact. The, the most successful of those kids that go into schools for Teach for America are the ones that have a principal that supports them and is really their mentor. Again, a statement about, about leadership. The sink or swim approach doesn't doesn't tend to work quite uh, quite as well. So uh, I do think there's a that there's an increasing recognition of the importance of leadership in education in K twelve. We could even say the university level, but that's my world. So let's stick to K twelve. Uh, and uh, and I think there's a deeper understanding. It's starting, and and I and I say that because I've had you know, a lot of conversations with people about super bosses, and I've spoken to a lot of places, and uh, more and more people from the educational sector have been reaching out to me. Uh, I've started to work with some on exactly these ideas. H- how do you really create? How do you instill a sense of of great leadership using some of the super boss ideas uh, in in schools? And I'm I'm hopeful. I mean, it's a long job. It's going to take a long time, but I'm very hope I'm very hopeful about it. That's good to hear. And what about teaching leadership, not just to the principals, but what about inside the schools themselves to young people? I mean, uh, for my money, one of the great ways to teach anything is just to tell a story. 
I mean, sometimes stories, and I think the great power of stories is their imitative power. I remember getting behind Leanne and Sean Tui's book, The Blind Side. We thought at our network that we were just helping sell a book. And it turns out the Tuis had discovered that through communication with people who had been inspired by their story, that thousands of people had adopted a child because they had. They led on an issue they cared about. They told their story, and the next thing you know, other people were leading their lives, solving a human problem that, my goodness, these kids could have ended up in the foster system. And no disrespect to the foster system, but getting in a loving family and staying there permanently, a very different outcome. Talk about the, the storytelling power and the teaching power of some of these stories. That's a, that's a, wonderful, uh, that's a wonderful story you just shared uh, that I didn't know. Um, so storytelling and leadership go, go hand in hand because... And teaching, actually, they go hand in hand. I'm a teacher, among other things that I do for, you know, in a university. And how do you tell, how do you teach a topic? Do you give them, you know, a list of the 10 things you need to, you need to know? I can, well, I don't even have to show up in class. I can hand them the list, memorize the list, and move on. That's not going to, I mean, nothing gets retained. It's, uh, and it's always the case that when you tell a story, what you're doing is you're getting to the emotional side of people. And, you're, and now the brain is opening up in a little bit different way, and you start to put yourself into that story. I mean, how, what would I have done? How would I have dealt with that? Um, how does that fit into my own life? And you, you, you start to remember it. You start to make the story yourself, your, your, your own. And it's not a surprise because, you know, this idea of oral history is about storytelling. It's been around forever, as long as humans have been around, as far as I know, we've been telling, we've been telling stories to each other. So there's, there's, uh, there's no replacement for it. I think, um, I think the best teachers, that's what they do uh, today. Uh, I think that's true in K-12 and in universities. But one of the problems we may have, and I'm, you know, I'm going out on a limb because I'm not an expert on curriculum in K-12, but all these tests that people have to take, and we understand why test taking has some value, but those tests are not about telling stories. They're not. They're about learning stuff. And in the modern age of Google, uh, I wonder how much, uh, how many facts and figures we should be spending our time on learning. And maybe we should spend more time on learning how to learn, learning how to think, learning how to communicate, learning how to tell stories. That's that's kind of that's kind of how I think about this thing. Well, and I think you're that is a, a conversation we're starting to have here right on our show with uh, some really great education experts, and that is, you know, education of the 20th century was for the industrial era, and era, and now we're looking at the information era, and it's a very different era, and we're going to have to th- rethink how we teach because the model we had was for a time and a place, and how you fix that, how you adjust that, I think that's the great challenge the great conversation of this century. And, Professor, we appreciate you joining us. Professor Sidney Finkelstein, author of Super Bosses: How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. He also happens to be a professor of strategy and leadership at Dartmouth College. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be on. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We love talking about leadership, and we will continue Go to our website, ouramericannetwork.org. We've got some stories up there now and watch in the next year. We'll be doing one a week, and ultimately we want to develop a real catalog on some of America's finest leaders and what's behind them.
love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories And on this day in history Johnny Cash was born And so we're going to spend the next hour Talking about his life, playing his music Hearing from his son Hearing from other artists playing his music And hearing from Rick Rubin The man who resuscitated this life and career and act and art a remarkable story but when you're telling a story you've got to start at the beginning born in Kingsland, Arkansas the son of poor Southern Baptist sharecroppers Cash was one of seven children born to Ray and Carrie Rivers Cash they moved with his family at the age of three to Dicey's, Arkansas so that his father could take advantage of the New Deal farming programs instituted by President Roosevelt. There, the Cash clan lived in a five-room house and farmed 20 acres of cotton and other seasonal crops. We went into the vault to dig out some clips. And here's Johnny talking about his childhood in Arkansas in those cotton fields, about the house that he was born in. February 26, 1932, in a little house surrounded by cotton fields. My father was a cotton farmer, walked behind the mules with the plow, and I did that as well. It was a family thing. Everybody in the family worked in the fields. Even the girls did. There's some sweet memories and some sad memories too, but, but it was a good life. But it was a good life. It was a hard life. But the hardest thing that happened to Johnny was losing his older brother and a star older brother, one he really looked up to. Here's Johnny's son, John Carter Cash, talking about his dad and his dad's brother. If it hadn't been for losing Jack, there's no telling if he ever would have gone on to sing the songs that he sang with such heartache, you know, um, related to so many people, you know, his, his suffering so easily because it was on his sleeve. He had a great understanding and closer spiritual relationship with God because he came in and studied in Jack's stead. And though he continued to sing and followed his heart's desire um, in music, he still delved even deeper into studying the Bible my father did in life because I believe that he had that desire to be who he believed Jack would have been. And he believed Jack would have been a pastor and a man of the cloth. Here's John Carter Cash, again, Johnny's son, talking about his dad's love of gospel music. This is the first music he ever fell in love with. You're also going to hear in this clip from Marshall Grant from the Tennessee Two who was in the room that fateful day, Cash auditioned in Memphis for Sam Phillips. My father's greatest desire when he got into the music business, he wanted to sing gospel songs on the radio. 
And I think, you know, I, I think it was only later on that he realized that, that you know, he, he might be actually making records in the studio and that they'd be recorded. He just wanted to sing on the radio. When we went to audition for Sam Phillips, it was still gospel music that we wanted to do. And we auditioned for Sam Phillips at Sun Records with a song called I Was There When It Happened. So I guess I ought to know. Well, I was there when it happened. And so I guess I ought to know. And if you remember in that scene from Walk the Line, Joaquin Phoenix walks into that studio. He sings that song. Sam Phillips is just shaking his head. He doesn't buy what Johnny's selling. And, well, here's the exchange in that movie. We come down here, we play for a minute, and he tells me I don't believe in God. You know exactly what I'm telling you. We've already heard that song a hundred times. Just like that. Just like how you were singing it. Well, he didn't let us bring it home. (laughs) Bring it home? All right, let's bring it home. He was hit by a truck and you were lying out in that gutter dying, and you had time to sing one song. Huh? One song people would remember before your dirt. One song that would let God know what you felt about your time here on earth. One song that would sum you up. you telling me that's the song you'd sing. That same Jimmy Davis tune we hear on the radio all day about your peace within and how it's real and how you're going to shout it. Or would you sing something different? And my goodness, he started to sing something different. What's left out of Walk the Line, and we'll get into in subsequent segments in this hour, is that he did keep on singing gospel. But ultimately, this, not soon thereafter, not long after this exchange, was Johnny Cash's first number one song. And the number one Billboard hit for him on the country charts. And here it is. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine I walk the line Lyrics that weren't exactly shake, rattle, and roll I keep a close watch on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine I walk the line His Christian essence there Right from the beginning The Struggles Between Flesh and the Spirit, a song about marital fidelity and his struggles with it, and he would have them, and he sung honestly about them. And so for the hour, the life of Johnny Cash is you won't hear anyone else on Our American Stories, but Our American Stories. And that's why we do what we do for you. These are the stories you want to hear. When we come back more on the life of Johnny Cash, born this day, in history in 1932. I walk 
got a way to keep me on your side. You give me calls for love that I can't hide. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Johnny Cash being celebrated on this day in history. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down. When the man comes around. And that man, of course, to Johnny Cash was, well, we know who that man is. And Walk the Line did not get into this. And it was a great movie. But it stripped the animating force of Cash's life. And that was God. And that was Jesus Christ. And Johnny wrote about his sin. We learned that about Scalia. His sin. We, you know, Christians have to talk about their sin or they're not, they're not being honest. And this, if anything, Johnny Cash was. And I think that's the appeal. And this movie just focused on his love of June, but not on his love of Christ. And let me tell you, Johnny did. He recorded the entire King James Version of the New Testament. Did you know that? He performed countless Billy Graham revivals, made a movie about the life of Jesus, and studied the Bible so much, he almost had a, well... I think he knew more about it than most Divinity School PhDs. Somehow none of that made it to the screen. Let's take a listen to Johnny's reading of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. None of it in the movie Walk the Line. Leaving out Cash's Christian faith from his life story would be like leaving out half-naked women from you Hefners. Or like telling the story of Jackie Robinson without ever mentioning race or segregation. You know, Cash was interviewed quite a number of times about his drug addiction. He spoke openly about his bouts with it and his selfishness. In one interview with Songwriter Magazine, he said this, You don't think about anyone else when you're on drugs. You think about yourself and where your next stash is coming from or your next drink. I wanted and wasted so much. I mean, we're not talking days I wasted. We're talking years, maybe decades. What a confession. 
Believers and non-believers alike know about such struggles. That's what attracted so many people to Cash's music, his humility, his empathy. Here's a story that should have been in the, the movie. It's out of his book, out of the book. And I think if you can read one book about Johnny Cash, it's called The Man Called Cash by Steve Turner. The book was supposed to be based on this. The, the movie was supposed to be based on this book. But my goodness, all the good stuff's not in the movie. Turns out Cash in the 1990s wanted to kill himself. And so he decided to go to Chattanooga, not far from his home, to a place called the Nickajack Caves where he spent a lot of time. And he had spent time there early in his life hunting for treasures such as Indian arrowheads and items left behind by Confederate soldiers. But on this occasion, again, he was looking to end his life. This is what he told writer Nick Toshis in 1995. And again, what a scene this would have made in the movie. Cash saying, I just felt like I was at the end of the line. I was down there by myself and I got to feeling that I took so many pills that I'd done it. That I was going to blow up or something. I hadn't eaten in days, I hadn't slept in days, and my mind wasn't working too good anyway. I couldn't stand myself anymore. I wanted to get away from me. And if that meant dying, then okay. I took a flashlight with me into those caves, and I said to myself, I'm going to walk and crawl and climb into that cave until the light goes out, and then I'm just going to lie down. And so I crawled in there with that flashlight, until it burned out and I laid down to die. I was a mile in that cave, at least a mile. And by the way, this cave is filled with over 100,000 bats. But I felt this great comforting presence come over me. And it was saying, no, you're not dying. I got things for you to do. And so I got up, found my way out. Cliffs, ledges, drop-offs. I don't know how I got out. Except... God got me out. Not in the movie. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, I think we know how that happens. His love for June is all over that movie, but not his love for Christ. And he loved June because of her almost perfect love for Christ. He said it over and over again. Here's another story that wasn't in the movie. This may be my favorite. In August of 1969, hundreds of thousands of young Americans gathered in Woodstock to catch this concert that at the time no one knew would be Woodstock. I mean, it turned out to be one of the great concerts of all time. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Creedence Clearwater, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. You name them, they were there. Sly and the Family Stone. It was everybody. Chris Christopherson had wanted his buddy Johnny Cash to go. Johnny had a show at this time on CBS. And he generally loved to introduce all kinds of new musical acts. We'll get into that in the next segment. His first time ever. His two musical guests were two kids named Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell. So he loved musicians and he loved celebrating them. But on this particular night, and by the way, that was ABC, not CBS, but on this particular night, he decided to close out his show with one of his favorite gospel songs. And let's take a listen. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to 
And perhaps his most famous recordings were ones he made in prisons, especially his two shows at Folsom Prison. Cash seemed at home there. He didn't see himself as better than those men. He was just one of the guys. He understood the prisoners in ways they realized without him ever saying anything. It didn't hurt that he'd written some of his best songs from the point of view of condemned and convicted men. Again, a sinner. He related. The inmates loved him for that. Actually, America loved him for that. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. Bono once said of Cash, he doesn't sing for the damned. He sings with the damned. And that was the true mark of Cash's Christian faith. The empathy he had for men and women, often overlooked in our society. When Cash got serious about his faith and left the women and alcohol behind, some of his old friends were not very happy with him. Quote, They'd rather I be in prison than church, Cash admitted. Waylon Jennings was especially tough on Cash, according to Turner accusing him of selling out to religion. He'd be attacked by agnostics and atheists if he appeared too pious, explained Stephen Turner, his biographer, and he would be denounced by the religious community if he appeared too worldly. Talk about a tough line Cash had to walk. But he tried to walk it. Cash was one asked, once asked how he was able to reach so many people with his message without ever hiding his faith. He had a simple, superb answer. I am not a Christian artist. I am an artist who is a Christian. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The life of Johnny Cash, born this day in history in 1932. We're telling you the story like no one else is. When we come back, more of his music. And I'll keep this world from dragging me down. Gonna stand my ground. And I won't back down Hey, baby There ain't no easy way out Hey, I... Well, about the time my daddy left to fight the big war Saw my first pistol in the general store In the general store when I was 13 Thought it was the finest thing I ever had seen I asked if I could have one when I grew up Mama dropped a dozen eggs and she really blew up She really blew up and I didn't understand Mama said the pistol is the devil's right hand She really blew up And that's Johnny Cash covering the great Steve Earle song he loved the younger writers. The younger writers loved him. In fact, perhaps Bob Dylan's best record, Nashville Skyline, my favorite. Uh, he does a recording of North Country Girl, his song, with one of his heroes, Johnny Cash, and here's what it sounded like.
you're traveling to the North Country Fair, where the winds hit heavy on the borderline, remember me to one who lives there. She once was a true love of mine. See for me that her hair's hanging down. It curls and falls all down her breast. See for me that her hair's hanging down. That's the way I remember her bed. And that was Johnny, about as good as he sounded. There was a period of time in the 70s and 80s when he sounded like a Johnny Cash cover artist. I saw him at the Lone Star Cafe twice. Once it was very sad, and I didn't get it. And I walked out, and he was on something, and it sounded terrible. And then I saw him again in a more acoustic setting, and I'd never seen anything like it. And we're going to get to that in just a bit. But we wanted to talk about Johnny's talent as a storyteller, because, boy, was he a storyteller. And I don't think he does it better than in this song that we all know, and let's hear a bit of it. I want you to, to if you don't mind, Carl, I'd like you to stay out and help us on some songs. Play the I'd guitar. Love to. One of the greatest guitar players as well as songwriters and singers in the business. Thank you. Appreciate a little help on the guitar, all right? Love it. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> Well, my daddy left home when I was three And he didn't leave much to Ma and me Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze Now, I don't blame him cause he run and hid But the meanest thing that he ever did Was before he left, he went and named me Sue Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke And it got a lot of laughs from lots of folks Seems I had to fight my whole life through some gal would giggle and I'd get red And some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue <laughs> Well, I grew up quick and I grew up mean My fists got hard and my wits got keen Roamed from town to town to hide my shame But I made me a vow to the moon and stars I'd search the honky-tonks and bars And kill that man that give me that awful name well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July And I'd just hit town and my throat was dry I thought I'd stop and have myself a groove At an old saloon on a street of mud There at a table dealing stud Such a dirty mangy dog that named me Sue Well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad From a worn-out picture that my mother'd had And I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye He was big and bent and gray and old And I looked at him and my blood ran cold And I said, my name is Sue How do you do? Now you gonna die And it just goes on In fact, stopping this song is really hard to do But what a story, what a storyteller In 1999, a bunch of artists got together In a star tribute to Johnny And Bruce Springsteen 
who had actually inspired Johnny, and Johnny covered several of Bruce's songs, Highway Patrolman, State Trooper, from the Nebraska record. Bruce did an introduction before he performed a song. Let's take a listen to that intro. Johnny, I want to send out a big thanks for the inspiration. Uh, you kind of took the uh, social consciousness from folk music and the, the gravity and humor from country music and the rebellion out of the rock and roll and, uh, and taught all us young guys that not only was it all right to, to tear up all those lines and boundaries, but it was important. And uh, this was a song I loved from the early recordings for a long time. I hope you like it. And then Bruce covers it in a way, ultimately, just him and a guitar, that would bring Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash together to do just the same. Take a listen. I found him by the railroad tracks this morning. I could see where he was nearly dead. I knelt down beside him and I listened To the words the dying fellow said He said they let me out of prison being free school For ten long years I paid for what I'd done I was trying to get back on losing See my rules and get to know my son Give my love to Rose, won't you, mister Hey, give her this money Tell her to buy some pretty clothes Tell my boys daddy's proud of them Don't forget to give my love to Rose Tell my boy my daddy is proud of him. Something I think Johnny always wanted to hear from his own dad. Bring my love to Rose, one of my favorites, Bruce's favorite. And then a little bit later, Dave Matthews comes out with Emmy Lou Harris and take a listen. Well, I spoke not a word, my life, And as Bruce had said, that's what Johnny did. He broke down walls. And think about the artists who loved him and admired him that night. Everybody from Bruce Springsteen to Bono, an Irish rocker, an American rocker, Snoop Dogg, Trent Reznor. All of them openly admired this openly evangelical Southern man. And all because Johnny dared to smash stereotypes transcend musical categories and share himself with the world for better or for worse 
And I got to say, especially for worse. And when we come back, you're hearing Johnny sing the Trent Reznor song, Hurt. We're going to talk about this unique relationship between Cash and his producer, Rick Rubin. And it is special. And you've never heard this before. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. On this day in history, in 1932, Johnny Cash was born. Familiar sting. Try to kill it all away. But I remember everything. What have I become? Delia, oh Delia, Delia all my life If I hadn't a shot, oh Delia, I'd have had her for my wife Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories And that MTV video and that American recording song, Delia's Gone Put Johnny Cash back on the map. He bumped into a guy named Rick Rubin, who was a producer of the Beastie Boys and some heavy metal bands. But, well, he was drawn to this this guy. Just drawn to him. And we're lucky enough, Jesse did some digging and found an interview between Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash. And what had happened at Cash was he'd sort of become a well, let's sort of just say a cover act of himself. And he had lost touch and contact with that original artist, those original feelings back in that Sun studio. And between the drugs and some bad decision-making, I think he had lost himself as an artist. And it took this young Buddhist, because Rick Rubin was a Buddhist and is, to get him in touch with his, actually, I think his faith, his songwriting, the guitar and that microphone and nothing else. Let's take a listen. From the documentary on the production of the American recordings of Johnny Cash, we hear this master producer, Rick Rubin, talking about how he realized that he wanted to work with his country legend. Most of the artists that I had worked with at that time were all new bands and young artists, and I was thinking it'd be really fun to work with a substantial grown-up artist. And I started thinking about all of the great legendary artists and who may have been in a, in a place that maybe either wasn't doing his best work or wasn't in a good situation and Johnny was the first one to came in came into my mind of really legendary status important uh, timeless artist well here's Johnny talking about his first recollection of meeting Rick Rubin backstage at one of his concerts and how they eventually started talking about recording together Rick Rubin called my manager Lou Robin and said he would like to talk to him about recording me. And Luz invited him to come to a concert. So he came to a concert a few miles south of Los Angeles. And I met him backstage. And we didn't really talk about me recording with him then. We talked about the record business and what I had been doing and what I hadn't been doing, mainly. But he said, I'd like to talk to you again. You know, it was getting late, so... He came to another concert, and we sat back backstage and talked, and he said, I'd like to record you on American. And I said, what would you do with me that, that uh, everybody else is 
tried to do, you know, and couldn't. And he said, well, what would you like to do? He said, that's what I'll do. And I, you know, I said, well, I would like to just take my guitar and sit down in front of a microphone and, and sing until I found the songs that I wanted to record and then record them the way that, that I feel like they should be done. And, I, and he said, well, that's what I want. He said, I want to get the best out of you, whatever you want to do. That's what I want to get on record. How about that? What an idea. It can be that simple time, sometimes, folks. It can be that simple. Hear Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin talk about how they started recording in Rick's living room. What a smart move. Get out of that studio. The Some first thing that we did in working together was kind of reframe the record-making experience from making just another album to we're not done until this is the best album you've ever made in your life. And whatever that takes is what we're going to do. Okay. And um, it was, it's like this is your first album. Sounded like a dream come true for me because I had always wanted to uh, record this way. I'd always wanted to. I have 25 years ago, I had a conversation with Marty Robbins. I said, I always wanted to record an album called Johnny Cash, Late and Alone. And uh, I told Ruben this. This is what I really would like to do. And uh, he said, let's do it. So we sat down and we, we made a deal. And I sat down in front of a microphone in his living room and went through my list of 200 or more songs and started singing them one after another. And we recorded them as I went along. In this clip, Rick Rubin talks about how he wanted to show the real Johnny Cash. Johnny says it gave him a new enthusiasm, enthusiasm he never thought he would ever get to experience again. I was really interested in getting to the heart of who he was and really exposing that and and showing the world who he really was. It's given me an opportunity to uh, express myself artistically that I never had before. I dug out every old song that I ever wanted to sing, and and I've sung them. The Tennessee stud was long and lean, the color of the sun and his eyes were green. It's given me an enthusiasm and a, and a new uh, look at what, I, what my possibilities and capabilities are that I never thought I would get to experience. Well, imagine that, a young man inspiring an older guy to get in touch with his original self, and maybe a self he never knew. Well, Cash says the reaction... He got after a concert he did in the Viper Room in Los Angeles because ultimately Cash had to test these songs out. And the Viper Room is a really famous small room in L.A. And Johnny gets up there with just the guitar and he starts singing these songs alone and he doesn't know what's going to happen. He has no idea what the reaction will be. He's probably scared out of his wits, which is good. And, well, he plays and the audience... The audience went crazy. They wanted more because they were hearing this colossal talent. Really, almost for the first time, it sounded like. Here's Cash talking about the reaction he got in that room that night. Well, the reaction was like the 50s all over again. It was like that kind of excitement. The 50s, you know, like I I had freedom of choice in the studio 
I did an album the way I wanted to, exactly the way I wanted to, the way it felt good to me, the way it felt good to my producer, and the reaction from the critics and the fans was beautiful. To be free. Well, let's take a listen. Uh, take a listen to a couple of the cuts. Of course, the first, the most historic, his cover of Nine Inch Nails is in Trent Reznor's Hurt. I hurt myself today. To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away and the lyrics just jump out at you. I hurt myself today to see if I just feel. I focus on the pain, the only thing that's real. Only an addict could have sung that song about addiction. Heroin, the drug of choice for Trent Reznor. Johnny Cash never did that, but it didn't matter. Here's Jesse's favorite. God's going to cut you down. can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Go tell that long-tongued liar, go and tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him that God's gonna cut him down. And circling all the way back to that original theme, I wanted to read something that Stephen Turner closed out his book with and then play the song. And here's how that book ended, Man Called Cash. The realm that Johnny Cash lived in was clouded by pain and colored by grace. He had the ability to transform the rough and commonplace into objects fit for heaven, just as he had been transformed. Rick Rubin remembers him taking Ewan McCall's The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face and turning it from a love song into a devotional song. Quote, He loved that, said Rick Rubin. It came really natural to him. It seemed like his devotion for life came from his devotion for God. Again, an atheist talking about a Christian. This was not in the movie. Shame on the movie. Take a listen to Johnny. The first time Ever I saw your face I thought the sun rose In your eyes
And the moon and the stars Were the gifts you gave This is Lee Habib, The Life of Johnny Cash, born on this day in history in 1932. And the endless sky, my love, and the first time ever I kissed your mouth. 